welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Niger Wright Brown, who has taken Baltimore by storm. Vegan storm. What's a vegan storm? I don't know what a vegan storm. A vegan storm is a storm of uh, what, Marianne? Like broccoli, tofu? I don't know. Spaghetti? Spaghetti. There was some movie like that. Like, uh, yeah, like, except it was meatballs. So it would be vegan meatballs. Cloudy. No, it was like, this is getting really. Okay. I'll go back on track. But let me just say it was vegan meatballs because it was a cartoon. Aha. All right. Back to the regular script. She is the co-owner of the vegan restaurant, The Land of Kush, co-founder of Vegan Soul Fest and Maryland Vegan Restaurant Month, and the executive director of the Black Veg Society. Uh, That's really amazing. I'm very excited about this interview, Marianne. Yeah, it was a great interview. But first, before we get to that, we're going to check in with Almira Tanner, who was last on our hen house on episode 605, and who is the lead organizer of Direct Action Everywhere, DXE, which is, of course, a grassroots network of animal rights activists working to achieve revolutionary social and political change for animals in one generation. Almira, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to our hen house. Thanks so much for having me. For those who are not up to date, can you just give us a summary of the events that led to the recent trial and the charges Wayne Shung was convicted of? Yeah, so it is an extremely complicated criminal case that dates back to 2018. If you really want to go back, it dates back many years earlier where our efforts to get Sonoma County and the state of California to actually enforce the law really began talking about Prop 2 and all of these sorts of things, lots of reports to authorities about animals in distress, the law being violated, and nothing was ever done. Not that surprising to us as animal advocates to help these animals. And so in 2018 and 2019, myself and hundreds of other people um, participated in a series of nonviolent demonstrations in broad daylight where we documented criminal animal cruelty at factory farms in Sonoma County and also rescued animals from those facilities. The original case comes from three of these mass actions. Uh, myself and five others who the Sonoma County authorities perceived as being in leadership were targeted. They even had these meetings, which we got um, notes from where they said, we're going to cut the head off the snake. Like this was a very targeted prosecution, which at one point involved 87 different charges. And by the time trial actually happened and started in September of this month, They had been whittled away, you know, people had taken plea deals or had their charges dropped and all of that sort of stuff. And the kind of net result was that Wayne Shung, the co-founder of DXE, ended up being the only defendant on trial for uh, four different charges. Uh, Believe it or not, two felony conspiracy charges to commit trespass. So two misdemeanor trespass charges and then two felony conspiracy charges to commit misdemeanor trespass. Kind of wild that you can be charged with a felony for conspiring to commit a misdemeanor, but that's the world we live in. And that's kind of what led up to the start of trial in September. I think I heard that Wayne wasn't even enthusiastic about this particular event. Is that true? So yes and no. So there's, I said, there's three events that happened, two in 2018, one in 2019. And a lot of things happened in between the second and the third event. This could be a three hour long podcast because the like the drama of all of this, I mean, and I don't mean like internal animal rights drama, I mean Sonoma County being horrifically 
uh, I don't want to say corrupt because that might be like an actual legal charge or whatever, but just working very closely with the Farm Bureau and with the factory farmers. Essentially what happened after the second action in 2018, the police literally ripped birds out of people's arms who were trying to rescue them, arrested people on felony charges, just had their own animal services report, uh, animal services, sorry, look at these birds that they had taken from our arms and deemed them to be horrifically sick, basically validating everything that we were saying. They said these birds were so sick that they actually killed them. We were begging them to please let us get, you know, have a chance to rehabilitate them. And this was a pretty intense and traumatic experience for a lot of us. Thankfully, one bird was allowed to be rescued that day. The cops said to us, you can take the sickest one and go. Um, so that's a whole other story. Um, that was Rose, this chicken. She's the reason that we have Rose's Law, our Animal Bill of Rights. All of this kind of made us understand that there was nothing that these Sonoma County authorities were going to do to help us help these animals. They were set on throwing us in jail on felonies for nonviolent actions, killing animals that we were trying to rescue. And so in 2019, the action that was organized at Reichardt Duck Farm was different. People chained themselves to slaughterhouses and to gates. The action was, I think, a lot more, you could say, like intense or disruptive, of course, still nonviolent. And that is kind of like that one was not organized by Wayne. That was organized by other people. The county still tried to blame him for that. That was the actual charge where um, the jury ended up remaining hung and they did not convict him of felony conspiracy to commit trespass at Reichardt. But Wayne's never been a big fan of lockdowns or these other types of options. Contrary to popular belief, like Wayne doesn't really run the show. You know, we're a pretty grassroots network. Wayne hasn't been in leadership for four years, four and a half years. Yeah, he definitely was not the biggest fan or the organizer of that action, despite what the prosecution tried to portray. You're making clear that this is very complicated and there's a lot going on. And at some point in the future, I would like to do an Animal Law podcast interview about it. But obviously, we're not even close to that because that would be when the appeal uh, process starts. But there's a lot going on now. And one of the things that's going on is that Wayne hasn't even been sentenced yet. So can you tell us when that is? And and for people who are in the area, uh, they might even want to attend if you could tell us where it's going to be. I'll just give a quick rundown of what happened at trial. Uh, trial was scheduled to end on September 21st. It ended on November 2nd. So it was so much longer than anyone could have ever imagined. The jury deliberated for six days and they ended up convicting him of one felony and two misdemeanors. And pretty unusual for an offense like this. He was immediately taken into custody without bail. Um, so didn't even have the option to bail out. He's been in Sonoma County Jail since November 2nd, awaiting his sentencing hearing, which by law, I believe has to happen within 20 court days. His sentencing hearing is exactly 20 court days from that. I think, I don't know if they were like, we're going to give him the largest amount of time to just sit and wait in that jail. So that is happening on November 30th. If people are, I know people who are like literally flying in for this, we're going to have, you know, well over a hundred people at this. If you want to join us, it is at 600 Administration Drive. It's the exact same place where the trial happened. This is in Santa Rosa, California. We're all gathering at nine o'clock in the morning. The sentencing hearing itself is at 1030, but we're going to be doing, you know, like a rally and press conference and all of that first, which we'd love for people to be a part of. And then we're going to find out what his sentence is. It could be, I believe that it's been really hard to get a clear answer from attorneys on what exactly the maximum is because felony sentencing is very complicated in California. 
but we understand that the maximum is most likely three and a half years. Okay. And, and that's a that's a possibility. So where is he now? So he is in the Sonoma County Maine Adult Detention Facility, which I have I have personally also been in and um, have spent quite a bit of time doing jail support outside that facility. So that's connected to the courthouse in Santa Rosa. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it's like there? So Sonoma County, like many jails, but I think Sonoma County is worse, is severely understaffed. And this is causing, I think, a complete denial of people's basic human rights. For the first bit, Wayne was in solitary confinement, essentially for 23 and a half hours a day. He was allowed to leave his cell for half an hour to make phone calls, go to commissary and shower. So the amount of time he was able to communicate with us was very limited because he had like 30 minutes to do all the things that you needed to do and like maybe talk to another human in person. Otherwise, you're in your cell. There's no clock. There's no windows. That has gotten slightly better. I think he is now getting out of his cell an hour to an hour and a half twice a day. And it is sad that we're like, wow, like, oh my gosh, like he's, but you know, he's really strong and resilient person. He knew that this was a possibility and he was willing to take that risk and that make that sacrifice. And um, my friend visited him on Sunday. That was his last visit and, or most recent visit, I should say, and said he was like doing well. He's in pretty good spirits. He's starting to get books. He's starting to get people's letters. Yeah, unfortunately, the food situation is not the best and we're not allowed to bring anything into him. So I think he's mostly eating uh, peanut butter sandwiches. So tell us about the recent rescue that you coordinate. Well, you coordinated the announcement at the same time as the day of the verdict. Yeah, you're trying to get me on a conspiracy charge there. I didn't coordinate the rescue. <laughs> I, meant, I meant the global you. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think regardless of what happened, whether Wayne was found guilty or not guilty, the, the reason we do this is because there are animals who are suffering. And even if he was fully acquitted, that would not be justice for these animals who still to this day are suffering at these facilities and many other facilities in Sonoma County. And so I would say within an hour, I don't know the exact time of Wayne's conviction, Zoe and Conrad, two incredible investigators and organizers with DXE, publicly released that during the trial, they had been going to these facilities and continuing to document the cruelty and rescuing animals who were in need of help. A hen, um, Elsie, who had, I guess, like the, the chicken equivalent of glaucoma, which is apparently extremely painful. The vet said she was in incredible amount of pain. She had her eye surgically removed and is doing much better. And then two ducks, River and Oakley, who, I mean, Zo- like Zoe for folks who don't know, has been in many farms. And I think she she has said that Reichardt Duck Farm is the the most awful place she's ever been. She was almost crying. You know, when you're in investigation mode, you're not feeling your feelings at that point. And she said she was almost crying rescuing them because there is a disease that is spreading in this facility that has been spreading in this facility at least since 2014 called Remorella that causes neurological injury to the ducks. And what that means or what that I guess, causes is that they flip onto their backs and then they can't get up. And these birds are, it's not even just that they're not going to have food and water, which they won't because they're stuck on their back. They're obviously frantic trying to get up. And River, one of the ducks was found in this condition. And when Zoe like flipped him over, like his whole back was just covered in wounds and blood because he was like, you know, trying so desperately to get up. 
They have received veterinary care, very, very expensive veterinary care, um, but are both like doing well. And I think that just goes to show that if these animals receive the care that they deserve, like they can live happy, healthy, or, you know, relatively healthy lives, but they're just never given that, never given that chance at all. So, um, and even more animals have been rescued. DXC Paris rescued five rabbits from it. Like, I think the the industry is hoping that we're scared and go away and um, that is not happening. And that makes me just like really, like, I, I'm just so proud of all of these people, some of whom I don't even know, just stepping up and taking action. And I feel so grateful to be part of, like a little part of this community. Um, yeah, so bad verdict in a, in the short term, but just... I think the response has been really powerful. And now we have a chance to appeal and make case law. Are there any other prosecutions in the hopper or on the horizon? I can't keep track of, of it all. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, if people want to see the cases, uh, right to rescue.com. Those are our rescue cases. Sometimes, you know, we have little protest related things that are kind of like misdemeanor disorderly conduct that tend to resolve themselves with diversions or deferred entries of judgment. The next big case that is coming up is currently scheduled for March 18th in Wisconsin. This is involving the rescue of three beagles from a, I mean, it's a factory farm for dogs where they breed dogs to sell them to universities and companies for animal testing. They do a little bit of testing at this facility themselves as well. It's called Ridgeland Farms. And it's a bit of a question mark as to what's going to happen with that case. Wayne is one of the three defendants, the other two, uh, Paul Picklesheimer and Eva Hamer. What's going to happen if Wayne is um, in prison during that time? They could delay the trial. They could sever the cases. They could ship him across the country while he's incarcerated to stand trial there. We don't really know, but that's kind of the next big one. Um, both of all, sorry, all three of them are facing two felony charges for the rescue of those dogs. So how can people help? And can they get in touch with Wayne? Because as soon as you said he's starting to get books, I was thinking, oh, I have things I could send him. How can people help? Yeah. So the probably the best way to help Wayne is to write him a letter. And people can, there's a lot of instructions and rules, like don't you dare use a colored piece of paper because that would be terrible and they won't give you his letter. Like it has to be on white paper, like all sorts of silly things like that. The instructions are at dxc.io slash write to Wayne, which when you say it out loud, sounds like write to rescue, but it's actually W-R-I-T-E. So like write to Wayne, write him a letter and yeah, just follow those rules. There's the address there. Um, You can mail that to him. Wait, can you reiterate that website again? Yeah. So dxe.io slash W-R-I-T-E to Wayne, write to Wayne. Um, and books can be sent. They have to be brand new. They have to be soft cover. They have to be directly from Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. There's just a lot of rules. So follow them if you want to send things. And also things do take a while to get there because they go to the jail and then the jail people read them. Um, Wayne has asked uh, uh, to make sure everybody knows, please don't ask him for legal advice or tell him about protests or things like that, because everything in those letters is is read and they could be held against him and also against you. So lots of rules, but he would love letters. Unfortunately, you cannot mail food um, or anything like that. And yeah, that's kind of like the main way to support. Um, other people have been asking about putting money on his commissary. That's taken care of. It's just a lot simpler if it goes through one person. So 
don't worry, we've got plenty of money to put on Wayne's commissary so he can eat ramen without the sauce packages, I think. Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know. Not what even the- they have there. <laughs> oh, I bet. So how's the mood? Uh, how's the mood at DXA? Like, honestly, like I was saying, like, good. I think it's it's not the outcome that we were hoping for, but I just think it's important for people to know that Wayne had the option of taking a plea deal. He he full well like knew the risks that he was taking. He had the option to get out of this case and he didn't want to. He is excited about the opportunity to use this to appeal because that is where some real case law can happen. Of course, that's not at all a guarantee, but yeah, he he knew that those were the risks and I think everybody kind of understands that he knew those were the risks and he is you know, prison is not easy. It's going to suck no matter what, but he's, he's doing okay. He's doing well. And I think people are like really fired up and motivated to do more for animals. And that doesn't have to be open rescue. Of course, not everybody is in the position to take legal risk and take two months off of your life and go to trial and all of those things. But there are so many things that people can do. You can write a letter to the editor of your paper that talks about this. You can do outreach. You can show up to the sentencing hearing. You can post on social media. Like there's just so many things that people can do that have very low legal risk. Um, We're also involved in a ballot measure in the exact same county where we're trying to shut down all these factory farms. There's no legal risk to collecting signatures and we could definitely use volunteers for that. So yeah, I think people are fired up. Um, We're not going to let this stop us. And I'm hoping that that mood continues after the sentencing hearing where we will have a better picture of what exactly we're looking at in terms of, is it six months or is it three years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. We hope you keep us posted. Speaking of which, are there any next steps for DXE or upcoming efforts that you care to talk about? Yeah, the main thing will be the sentence. I mean, in terms of like public facing stuff, sentencing hearing November 30th. Also for folks who just like don't live in the area and can't travel, there are people organizing solidarity actions in their own cities. So you can just go to a busy spot in, I mean, there's one being organized, for example, in New York City. You can show up there and just be like, did you know an animal rescuer is going to prison today because of this horrible corrupt system and talk to people about that. So you can always organize an action in your own your own location. And we are having our strategy sessions tomorrow because we're like, yeah, what do we do now? Um, of course, we have some ideas and helping with the ballot measure and all of that stuff. But starting to think about what's the next six months look like. I know a lot of people have questions about the Animal Liberation Conference, and we do not know if we are doing it yet. So you'll have to wait, wait for that. Well, thank you so much. Please keep us posted. And we so appreciate you hopping on with us today. Just hang out for a few minutes, but uh, we we will be thinking of Wayne. And I know that our Hen House listeners will be also supporting him and supporting you all. So we really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get to the main interview, we have some very important information for our beloved flock members, the ones who make monthly donations. And we love you all, by the way. We love you when you make donations. We love you when you just listen or when you post positive reviews on all of your favorite podcatchers. But right now we're talking specifically to our flock 
We have mentioned it previously, but in case you missed it, we are in the process of changing our membership management to a new system. This means that if you have a current recurring donation, it will be ending this month, November, November 2023, in case you come to us from the future. And we're going to need to get you to sign up on our new platform to continue your flock membership. So we've sent out our first round of emails and we will continue to be in touch. But we also wanted to give you a heads up here in case you're anything like me and not the best about checking your emails. Sorry to the 5 billion people who are still waiting to hear back from me on emails. I apologize. Annual donors are also welcome to head over and get started. And the coolest thing is you will now have the option to set your annual donation to recurring as well, which I love. We have officially adopted the old set it and forget it motto and the new platform. It's really cool. We're really excited to get everyone started there. Let us know if you have any questions. Go to ourhenhouse.org slash support. And of course, if you're not already a flock member, we do invite you to join us or make a one-time donation of any amount at ourhenhouse.org slash support. And I will add that between now and the end of the year, all donations up to $25,000 are being matched as long as we get to that $25,000. So if you have ever thought about supporting uh, independent vegan media, pro-animal media, which is still like, uh, you know, as, as I'm sure Elmira knows, it's still like not not the norm. It's not the norm in, in mainstream media. So if you believe in the power of media, which we all certainly do, then head over to ourheadhouse.org slash support. So, oh, exciting times. Just one more announcement before we go. And that is that if you have been a listener for a while, you know that every year at Thanksgiving, we do a special event on uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and we put up a recording of a, a radio play called Sanctuary that is really fun and really good, or at least I think it's really good. And if you haven't listened before, or if you make this your Thanksgiving tradition to listen, uh, just letting you know that it'll be up this Tuesday. And I hope you do listen, because uh, this is a play by John Yunker, one of our favorite people. And it's a lot more fun than going to prison. Is that is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that was a I'm just trying to pivot. tie it all together here. Yes. Well, it is a different form of activism, for sure. And I think you forgot to mention, Marianne, that not only did John, who we adore, write it, but the Airhand House team, we were the cast and crew. <laughs> So it's super fun. It airs every year. We performed it live at Symphony Space in New York City in 2017. So it'll be on your podcast feed on Tuesday. And happy Thanksgiving to those of you who celebrate it with a big vegan feast. Nyjah Wright-Brown is on the Baltimore Sun's list of 25 Black Marylanders to watch in 2023, is a 2021 Baltimore Business Journal Enterprising Women of Excellence honoree, and is a vice chair of the Board of the Restaurant Association of Maryland. She's very busy. Yeah. 
I also didn't know Marylander was a word, and now I do. That's exciting. A native New Yorker. I did know that a New Yorker was a word. Nija has an MBA in business from the University of Phoenix and is a co-owner of The Land of Kush, a multi-award-winning vegan soul food restaurant and co-founder of Vegan Soul Fest and Maryland Vegan Restaurant Month. She is the executive director of the Black Veg Society, a nonprofit organization that is on a mission to help Black, Indigenous, and people of color close the gap in health disparities by educating on holistic health, veganism, and plant-based lifestyles. Her digital talk show, Nyjah Speaks, helps others find their vegan soul through food, people, events, and culture. Nyjah will be joining Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CIF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey everyone, Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. And we hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to our hen house, Nyjah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. I can't wait for this conversation because you are doing really a lot of different things. And so I thought about it a lot, like where should we start? And then I thought maybe it would be good to start at the beginning. So (laughs) you have kind of built your whole life, at least your professional life around veganism. Can you tell us how and why it all happened? People always think when they first meet me in the vegan movement, they think I have built my whole life around veganism, but that's not true. I've been working since 14. (laughs) I haven't always been vegan. I grew up in a New York City housing project in the Bronx, the South Bronx. So born in Lower East Side, raised in the South Bronx. I I just want to interrupt you for a second because I just want to mention I was born in the Bronx as well. Oh, wow. Awesome. Great. (laughs) What part of the Bronx? Norwood, kind of central near Montefiore. Yeah. Okay. All right. Other people probably don't need to have more specifics, but that's great. It's always nice to need another person from the Bronx. I always have to describe that because it's all concrete. You got tall buildings. I walked 10 blocks to school. We had the box food. We waited for the box cheeses, the government's cheese. We were on public assistance. So you can imagine the meals that we we were eating weren't plant-based. We've been talking about all animal products, box products, not the most healthiest diet for a few years. But when my mother sent me to camp at age six, she sent me out to the Berkshires and she wanted me to get a new perspective, a new life in terms of out of 
the concrete more into nature. So starting at age six, I spent summers with a family in the Berkshires and that would open my eyes to a lot of different things, including eating from the garden because we would eat from the garden every day. We would make our own bread. And at the time they had a farm, friends would farm. So you would go get the food from the farms, whatever that food may be. We would get a lot of our food from the farm animals. And it was a whole nother experience, you know, walking the rivers and things like that. So I would do that for a few years. They even took me to Italy at age 21. So imagine I'm six and I'm with this family throughout the summers and sometimes through holidays up until age 21, 22. So that's a very long time to be exposed to a family. And as a matter of fact, let me mention this. The couple was a Dutch wife and a Jewish husband. So now you have two different cultures together and they were also self-employed. The husband was a carpenter and the wife was a painter. Fascinating. Yeah. What a contrast. Just think from the age of six all the way to 21, this is what I'm exposed to in the summers. And again, sometimes throughout the year during holidays and Christmas holidays as well. Yeah. The vegan part of my life (laughs) didn't come until I was 33. So I'm 50. I'm going to be 52 in February. Well, you're looking very good, Nyjah. Thank you. Veganism (laughs) wasn't introduced to me until age 33. So we're talking about a little over 20 years ago. I went vegan when I was 45. (laughs) So you're ahead of me. So I started working at 14. I always got to tell people that because when you start working, you're exposed to a lot of things. When you start going outside of your neighborhood, doing a lot of different things, you're exposed to a lot of different things and a lot of different people. So when I was 33, I was relocated to Maryland through company relocation. I worked for Verizon Wireless for 10 years. And this was post 9-11 because before 9-11, I had a great job. I had an entertainment company. I was promoting talent shows and producing comedy shows, doing all that type of fun stuff that you do in New York City. I was a nightclub promoter, all of that. And then 9-11 came and the type of job I had, they were laying off people and I thought my life was ending. So to be honest, in my 20s, I was this person like, where am I going to go next? What am I doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then I landed on this job at Verizon Wireless, which I didn't really like or appreciate at first because it was paying me less than half of what I used to get paid. So I was kind of crying to my mom. She's like, when one door closes, another door opens. So I would spend 10 years at Verizon Wireless and land in Maryland in 2005. So, you know, when you go state to state, you got to find a new dentist, you got to find a doctor, you got to find, you know, (laughs) all these type of people because you're in a whole nother area. I would have never imagined that I would be in Maryland coming from New York and, and New Jersey. But I landed here and I thought I was in the best health I used the gym at my job. I was eating all the protein I can possibly eat with eggs and cheese and milk. I was doing what (laughs) the food guidelines was telling me to do. All of this stuff, all to find out that my cholesterol was high. And if I didn't do something about it, I was going to be prescribed meds. And I'm holistic. So if no one understands that or knows what that is, drugs are the last thing on my list. I don't want any counter drugs. I, I don't, everything is holistic. So just think boron, think chest towel when you get a cold. Those are the type of products that I use, natural. Yeah, I tend to be the same way. Yeah. It's just kind of how I was brought up. My mother hated taking medicine, you know, and it, it just, that sticks with you your whole life. 
I don't want to be addicted to drugs. And, you know, more research you do nowadays and all the commercials that you see nowadays, it's all about being addicted to drugs. And I'm not into drugs. Every single commercial. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, what is wrong with us? Well, everything is wrong with us, apparently. It's just drugs, drugs, Exactly. Drugs. And I wasn't having it. I mean, sometimes medical care is very helpful and very important for people with conditions. But it just seems like everybody in the world is just stuffing themselves full of pills all the time. Yes. And, you know, later on, we'll talk about food being medicine. But... I wasn't going to be on drugs. That's it. So that terrified me. So I went home and uh, I searched some things on Google. I call it Dr. Google. You know, you got your WebMD, you got all type of stuff on Google. And it would walk me through how do you reduce cholesterol? And the bottom line is don't eat things with cholesterol. So at that time, I don't know about vegan, vegetarian. I didn't know about any of these labels. I just knew I had to not mm. consume anything that had cholesterol. So yeah, there was the skim milk, things like that. Also garlic pills, all of this type of stuff that I was putting in my daily regimen until I met Gregory Brown, who also worked at Verizon Wireless. He came into the job a year after I had moved down to Maryland, and he was a very interesting gentleman. He was bringing all these different dishes to work, dishes that I wasn't familiar with. He had nice, beautiful, long locks. He had all these type of interesting books in his cubicle. And come to find out, this was a gentleman that was trying to open up a vegan restaurant in Baltimore. He was vegan. He's been practicing vegan for a long time, into meditation, yoga, and things like that. So this is where I started learning about the diets in terms of plant-based and the vegan lifestyle and what it is. My thing was the business because I came to Maryland trying to figure out what was the next thing I was going to do. Because in New York and New Jersey, I was doing a lot of different things. I started comedy shows, talent shows, nightclub promoting. And I was looking to see what was I going to get into in Maryland and meeting Gregory and talking about this dream of opening a vegan restaurant got my will spinning. I'm like, this might be it. I'm passionate about the lifestyle. I'm trying to do better and eat better and get my cholesterol down. Maybe this is it. I don't know about food service, never worked in food service, wasn't interested in food service, but this piqued my interest. Yeah, it sounds like this was a match made in heaven. Exactly, Uh, exactly. Yeah, because he had one aspect of it and you had the other aspect of it, this business with a mission. So tell us, what did you find with the elements that go into creating a successful business model that serves a greater purpose? Where do you hit that balance of doing good, but also making money? Yeah, well, (laughs) we'll get to that money piece in a minute. Well, in the market of food service, people assume that everyone is your market and everyone isn't your market because there are different cuisines for a reason. Some people like this cuisine, it could be Italian, Asian, American and soul food. So I was always a soul food person. You know, we're talking about growing up in New York and in New Jersey and Harlem. I always loved soul food. I had talked to Greg about the idea if he was trying to reach the Baltimore city market and surrounding areas that we need to create a soul food menu. So you're talking about your collard greens, which I loved, and baked mac and cheese, which I loved. And you got vegan drummies and barbecue ribs and yams. And, you know, so you get you get the idea. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. So this was tested out and he's a self-made, self-educated chef. Didn't go to culinary school, but he knew how to make sauce and sauce is the boss. You season things with herbs and spices and 
all types of stuff. He knew how to make curry sauces and barbecue sauces and mustard sauces and you know, just you name it, all type of different sauces. And we would test these recipe ideas, starting with the barbecue ribs and the collard greens and yams and mac and cheese at the African American Heritage Festival which is a festival that took place at Camden Yard. So if anyone's been to Baltimore and they've been to an Orioles game, you know, that's a big yard. It went on for three days. We were the only vegan vendor there. So if you can imagine three-day event, all these type of different cuisines, we would sell out every single night at this festival. That's really impressive. And that was before veganism really became as trendy as it is now, which is probably partly because of the work you've done, why it's become so trendy. But you must have been really introducing these foods to people who really hadn't thought about it before. So where do you hit that balance between making it healthy and recognizing that we're doing this for health, but making it delicious for people who are used to eating much less healthy food? Like, how do you hit that was he more interested in really hitting the health aspects? Yes. And did you have to make modifications to make people want to eat it? Well, you got to season it. I mean, a lot of times if you think about collard greens, some of the ingredients are smoked animal something. Yeah, collard greens by themselves are not that delicious. <laughs> you got to do something with them. Exactly. You got to season them. And initially we started with the smoked tofu. So we had chewed smoked tofu mm. bit in the collard greens. So, you know, nowadays especially with the rise of food costs, it's just liquid amino acids right now that are smoked. So just a smoked liquid in there. But back then we chopped up the smoked tofu and we put it in there and with the herbs and spices, it was really, really good. And it's still good today. We allow people to sample. So that's one thing. If people aren't sure about the food, you just can't expect them to buy stuff. You have to allow them to sample. People are like, vegan barbecue ribs, what is that? You know, and then you have information to hand out. At that time, it was nutritional science. There was a newsletter I used to get. It was called Nutritional Science. And there was an edition that talked about red meat and how bad red meat was for you. So I had that out there, that literature that I was distributing to anyone that came up and tried a sample of the barbecue ribs. Because if you're thinking about beef, now I have this literature to give you about, hey, you want to reduce your red meat intake because of these reasons that this nutritional science newsletter laid out. So we had the education there. We had the samples that we were giving out and people would buy and people would buy the yams and they just would get sold onto it while you're here at this festival. Hey, you know, let me try this. This tastes good. Oh, I, I wanted to start a healthier journey. Okay, let's do this today. So, I mean, that <laughs> that had a lot to do with it. Did you see the signs right then that Black veganism was going to take off in a, in a different way? Was it because people knew that what they were eating wasn't healthy and they were looking for something new? People know. Because Black veganism has really exploded. And uh, it, people know. You, you smoke a cigarette, you know it's not the healthiest thing. People that are doing things that, that are unhealthy, they know it's not healthy. It's just a matter of being around. I always call this the circle of influence, being around the support system that can help you get to where you need to go. Because if you continue to hang and not to say you got to get rid of your old friends, but if you're continuing to be around that circle of influence of these habits, whatever the habits are that you want to get rid of, it's going to be difficult, you know? Totally. 
Yeah, we are primates. We learn from each other. I I was just watching that show, the Blue Zones show on Netflix. And one of the pieces of advice he said was to have at least one vegan friend. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Just in your circle, have one vegan friend. And that will change the way you eat. Exactly. Now, your question about the rise of Black vegans. Well, (laughs) this lifestyle has been around for a long time. If you think of the Rastafarians, the the reason why Jamaican restaurants will have what they call ITAL menu is because of those that do not consume meat or dairy. It's an ITAL menu. So they've been around for ages before this vegan veganism. Donald Watson, to my understanding, this is a 1970s term. Vegetarianism has been around for a long time and there's always been pure vegetarians. I don't know why people assume vegetarians always eat milk or dairy. That wasn't true. There were and still are pure vegetarians. This is why I have this issue with labeling because it's a separation process in my mind. (laughs) That's why when you went to the doctor, they they asked, were you lacto? Ovo, lacto, or ovo, or pure veg. These are questions that they would ask. So you had your Black Hebrew Israelites in Judaism, the Hindus, you know, this was nothing new. So the roots were there. The roots were there. They just had to be tended. Exactly. You just had somebody come out with, okay, let's take this a little further and we're focusing on the animals. But if you think of ahimsa, violence and cruelty was also stated in that definition, minimizing your acts of cruelty, whether it's through your words or through your action, through a hint, right? Yeah, that was kind of my next question for you. You know, of course, we're more of an animal rights podcast than a vegan podcast, though they kind of the same thing in so many different ways. But when people start coming to veganism because of health, do you find it's good to stay away from the animal issue? Or is it best to go there and really bring the full picture of why, or does it depend on who you're talking to? You still bring the education in there. And that's how we evolved with the Land of Kush, because in the beginning, we had the Land of Kush logo with vegetarian cuisine. And for some reason, people were confused about the term vegetarian cuisine. Does it have milk, eggs? We had to educate them on pure vegetarianism that existed. You know, fast forward to now, now we're vegan soul bistro. But the education was still there about not being cruel to animal and understanding the level of compassion. It's all about compassionism, just being more compassion, your compassion in action, which means you shouldn't be uh, harming any living being. So we always had this education out there. But when you're thinking about a demographic, which if we're targeting the Black and African-Americans and Latinos, we're talking about the health disparities. And sometimes you got to take it as what's in it for me. We've seen people beaten, killed, stomped, all the children, (laughs) young children are seeing this. And if you're coming into the community, just talking about animals, people will look at you like, hey, did you, you know what I saw last night? It was worse than that. No, uh, I know. (laughs) The animal issue can really, for a lot of different reasons and a lot of different people, can really put people off, some people, and for other people, they really embrace it. It's all about the person. I guess you're always kind of seeing what works with different people. It's all about the individual. I also find once people really adopt this way of eating, they're more open to the animal issue. And also, I find a lot of communication on kind of an anti-colonial kind of attitude. It's understanding that a lot of these foods that are really bad for you are not traditional foods if you go back far enough. Right. They were introduced in times of oppression. Exactly. So it's back to the education 
piece. So you're 100% correct. And then on the reverse of that, when you talk about colonialism, a lot of times when you're coming into the community, if it's a missionary or a person of help and trying to lead the people, people can take that as, okay, you're trying to colonialize with this movement. That it's a new white thing rather than a way that people have always eaten. Yeah, exactly. So there's so many different levels to this. No matter where you are, (laughs) no matter who you're talking to, they're going to have a lot of defenses about why they don't have to be vegan. that's That's just a fact. Changing what you eat is hard. And not only that, not changing what you eat, because again, food is social. And the first thing people are thinking about, okay, once I change my food habits, now where's my social environment? I don't want to lose friends over this. So they're going to judge away. And no matter what you say or how you say it, the person has to be psychologically ready. So my approach is always, why do you want to do this? And our society, the Black Men Society, we're going to meet you where you are. That is the mission wherever you are on the journey, because it's still about the whole person. I'm Nadja before I'm vegan. So, hey, Nadja is my name. And I was Nadja before I even became vegan. And this is what I want you to understand about me before we even go into the conversation about veganism, because the way you became vegan wasn't the way I became vegan. It's two different stories. So everyone has a personal journey and we need to respect that. And we need to respect the fact that if you weren't born vegan, then you should already know (laughs) that there is a way that this happens. Some people can do it overnight. They watch a documentary and that's it. Some people watch a documentary and hey, this is like a scary movie to me. And now we're moving on to the next thing. And for other people, it's an enormous struggle. And, you know, there's no point in getting frustrated with people if it's a struggle. For some people, changing what they eat is just harder than for other people. And that's where they are. And then people don't want to be told what to do. That's no. another thing. <laughs> I don't. And, 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 and now you're talking about an oppressed people and really don't want to be told what to do. Well, another thing, another thing too, is that, well, I wanted to talk a little bit also about availability, which has always been an issue in a lot of communities that just isn't there. I'm wondering whether you've seen any improvement with that. But aside from availability, there are other things that I don't think get talked about enough. For one thing, these foods are addictive. And so it's not just a matter of, you don't just put fruits and vegetables and a bunch of collard greens in front of somebody and say, see, this is great. Now you have them. People don't know how to cook them because over these years of fast food and everything, people have lost their whole family history and how, how you cook things. And they've lost time. Yeah, not even that. They lost time. We're living in a society that 24 hours, for some reason, isn't enough for anybody totally. anymore. And the larger totally. your family is, it's less and less time. So if you're talking about, hey, I'm going to spend an hour in the kitchen after I get off of work. And if people have two jobs and uh, two, three, sometimes some people working on the weekends. Yeah, like- I had to convince a mother to stop working on the weekends because she was losing her mind. Yeah. I said, you got to get rid of one of these yeah. jobs. And this goes back to the whole person thinking about the whole person and what they're going through. Understand you have your mission, it's for the animals and we understand that, but understand individuals have their own missions first before anything. And whatever that mission is, it's inclusive of their family. And if they have kids and how are they surviving? How much money do they have? How much time do they have? You see, there's a lot of different factors (laughs) and people are different, you know, like their goals are different. The availability of their time is different. Their income is different. No one message works for everybody. 
what I see here in the community, in the Baltimore community that's happening right now, that's great, is a focus on growing your own food. So a lot of that goes on and making farmers markets available to those that can get to them. So remember, if you don't have a car or you have to rely on public transportation, that can be the determining factor whether this is going to be for you or if you're just going to continue to go down the block to the fast food place because it's easier. It's easier and it's delicious, you know, in this awful (laughs) kind of delicious way, this kind of addictive delicious way. They make that food in a way that just really... With sugar. The sugar. Yeah, absolutely. I I can tell you, we're right around the corner from a fast food spot and, you know, sugar on top. That's the addictiveness. You know, once you get addicted to sugar, it's hard to get off. Totally. (laughs) Been there. But the education piece is important. You still have to have the education piece there because there are people that want to know more. They want the information because they're trying to fit it into their lifestyle, whether it's got to be a flex, whether it's got to be a routine that they incorporate, even if it's one day a week or it's one meal a day. We have to meet people where they are and we have to be more compassionate as vegans and understanding. And no one has to do anything. Well, let's just be blunt right there. You don't have to do anything. You can do the movement the way you see fit. If you have the statistics and numbers to show, well, I saved 100 people this year by doing it this way. That works for you. And then someone can say, well, I saved 100 people doing it this way this year. And that works for them. There has to be an open-minded process for this. There's not one way. And if anybody says there's one way, I'm sorry, they're incorrect. There is no one way. Well, it's crazy. Anyway, what we're trying to do is change the way the entire world eats. I mean, it's a big job. The idea that there is just one way forward and that anybody would know what it is. If we don't try different things, how would we possibly know what it is that that works with people, what messages work, what don't? And of course, people are different. So it's a complicated job, but it seems like you're doing a really, really good job with it. You're reaching a lot of people. I was interested to see that you recently spoke at the ABA summit and the title of the speech was Diversifying the Global Animal Justice Movement. So you really are thinking globally. You you have to. Even if you're acting locally. So can you tell us a little bit about what you spoke about? Oh, man. Well, let me go back. That was what, in July? I'm just really interested in your big picture. Well, what I like this year that I saw at the AVA Summit is that they had the continents. So think the continents, not just countries, the continents. Yeah, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And I have a real big interest in Africa because a lot of the stuff that we try to cook at the restaurant is based on African meals and cuisines. And then we're getting into Latin because I'm half Puerto Rican, too. So they reached out to me to ask me to do a presentation on how do we launch the vegan restaurant weeks and restaurant months, because there were plans to do this in Africa. And I thought that was really interesting. And also the Veg Fest. So we're here in the U.S. thinking about what we're doing. We have less than 5% of the population being vegan or plant-based, but we have a whole other continent uh, of people, my people, you know, African descent is working on their process of getting this done. It's a whole different process too. This is a whole another country. And I was honored to do that. I'm like, wow, they're really looking at us and trying to get best practices on how to incorporate this over in their countries. If it's Nigeria, Uganda, Ghana, or wherever. 
So it's very important to look abroad and see what's going on because (laughs) we're complaining over here, but it can be worse in other areas. And I think we all have to work together without the infighting or, you know, this system or this way is better than that way or, or whatever. We have to make a way if there's no way. And we have to learn how to be collaborative with each other and share these best practices. So it is a global landscape because these are all different cultures and different political systems. We know our system here. We we know, I'm sorry, it's a capitalistic system. It's about money, hands down. Because if it wasn't, why can't we get subsidies on vegan products? You you get it? If it was about vegan and, and the movement, why is it so hard to get this stuff? Especially if we're speaking on health and why it's better to be plant-based or vegan. I don't know why no one can solve that problem. But when you're thinking about other countries and the global system, you know what the political makeup is of that. It can get violent, as we see now. It can get extremely violent. Yeah, there are different challenges everywhere. And some of them are greater than ours, but some of ours are the power of the industries is very, very strong here. But I like to think of it, what you were saying made me think of, like all of the these people who are vegan, who are care about the animals, who care about people, who care about health and want to change the way people eat. We're everywhere, but we're all one family in some way. We're all together on this issue, no matter where we are. And I think it's so important to look what's going on in other countries and for them to learn from you, you learn from them, be inspired by them. We've had a number of people on from Africa. I find their work incredibly inspiring. And, you know, some factory farming has taken hold there. But less factory farming has taken hold in Africa, I think, than anywhere else in the world. And that's very hopeful. I mean, you know, the best time to turn anything around is before it happens. Exactly. So I think there's really a lot of exciting work going on there. And so I'm really glad you told us about it. But you were talking about your restaurant week and VegFest, and they're doing the same things there. And they're learning from you and you were learning some stuff from them. But we haven't really talked about that. We've talked about the restaurant. But tell us about all the other projects that you work on. <laughs> okay. Well, Nadja Speaks is a digital talk show and, you know, we, we just go live. I want to meet people where they are and help them find their vegan soul because everyone has a little compassion in their soul. I don't care what type of person they are. So we're trying to find a vegan soul through food, people, events, and culture. So that's the platform. So I'm interviewing advocates, activists, business owners, whether they're vegan or plant-based or putting their foot into the lifestyle, trying to figure out their journey. The last episode I had, I was talking about an event. There's a first annual Vegan Curious Festival coming up. Oh, that's a clever idea. Yeah. So just, I love new ideas, new things, because it means rather than this is a festival for the vegans, it's vegan curious, really setting it up. So it's trying to draw in other people who aren't vegan yet. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. And and Vegan Soul Fest was co-founded by myself and Brenda Sanders uh, of Afro Vegan Society. And Brenda has been on several times. Yes. Amazing award-winning activist. She's an extraordinary woman. So we were just having a conversation at Landa Kush before, you know, we even launched Vegan Soul Fest. And it was supposed to be a conference where Landa Kush was catering for her conference. And the conference never happened because we came up with Vegan Soul Fest. And the reason why we came up with that is because the problem we were trying to solve was how do we make a 
vegan fest successful in the inner city of Baltimore? Would people come to that? So not having it outside because everyone, you know, is so scared of Baltimore, Baltimore is this and that. But people have to understand that Baltimore is not all bad. There are good things going on in Baltimore. And we wanted to show people that. So that year we organized this festival in three and a half months, having no idea how to plan and organize a festival. We thought we were just going to serve a couple of hundred people with probably a couple of dozen vendors. No, we had over 80 something vendors, close to 90 vendors that year and close to 2000 attendees. And we didn't even imagine that this was going to happen That's in crazy. 2014. That's totally yeah. Crazy. So we knew that there was a need. There was a need for people like us that wanted to enjoy a veg fest. The way we like to enjoy it with our music, with fun, with speakers, with something for the children to do. So it was just amazing. It was an eye opener and it was a learning experience. And we would do that all the way up to 2019 before COVID. Every year would grow and grow and grow. It just grew so large that it outgrew us. Like we couldn't even handle it anymore. It just became that big when you're reaching 6,000 attendees. It was just an amazing, amazing time. Now we're shifting post COVID to this music festival, food festival type of idea where wouldn't it be nice to go to an event like this and not have to worry about, hey, you know, where are the vegan options? No, we're going to bring this to you and everything is going to be there in this musical concert setting and this food festival. I love that. That's another level of learning for us because again, it's a big festival. This year we had uh, close to 15,000 attendees paid ticket. These are people that bought tickets to this event. Imagine that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. You really said it, it was crazy. It was definitely crazy out there. So, <laughs> but we're, we're doing it. <laughs> we're doing it and we're, we're living a dream and we're bringing the information to the masses. And now we're making it this more, hey, that's the festival you want to be at this year. Yeah, no, I love the idea of making it a music festival that, that is vegan rather than a vegan festival where a lot of people would think, well, I don't need to go that. I, I'm not vegan, so I won't go. Like everybody will go to a music festival if it's good. Exactly. You just got to default to the vegan stuff that's there. It's all going to be vegan products, vegan food. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So much creative work going on in Baltimore. I mean, largely due to you and to Brenda as well. Like So many exciting things. I, I need to let you go because we've taken a lot of time. But before we do, I just want to find out. We've talked about what you've been doing, but what's coming up in 2024? Vegan Restaurant Month, which started out as Baltimore Vegan Restaurant Week and then became Maryland Vegan Restaurant Week. And now it's Maryland Vegan Restaurant Month happens twice a year in the spring and uh, the summer. So we're looking forward to some new partnerships and uh, new developments for uh, the next one in March 2024. How do how does a restaurant qualify to be part of it? You can be vegan or veg friendly. All you have to do is have some plant based options on your menu. And we're going to promote that. We're going to promote people to come in and try these options and vote on it. Vote on it so we can find out who's the best dish, who's the best dessert, who's the best beverage. Um, you know, what's great about that, too, is because so many restaurants, if they do add a vegan option, it's uninspired. Right. It's like. You know, they just grilled vegetables or something, you know, or portobello burger, you know, they, like the chefs don't put themselves out for it. But this really would encourage chefs to like get creative and, and create something delicious. It's celebratory. Yeah, we're celebrating the month and we're giving people time. A week wasn't enough. Two weeks wasn't enough. 
So well, a month, hopefully, it's it's enough for people to go out there and try as many options, breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. And we're going to keep on going. I, I really want to get into some more events for the children. My daughter is a vegan, born vegan. So really thinking about ideas around how we can get to the youth. We do have a couple of youth mentees working at Black Viz Society, our nonprofit, doing some things. So I'm looking forward to seeing some interview and youth panels and stuff like that coming out from Black Bear Society. So just getting more into the youth. And we're talking about from elementary, middle, high school, college. <laughs> That's great. Very exciting. There's so many reasons for vegans to go to Baltimore. And I know people can keep up with your work on yes. Naja Speaks, which is uh, on YouTube. Is that right? Yes. NajaSpeaks.com. Yes. And then all of the social, you're on all of the social media. Yes, you can follow me at Naja Speaks Vegan Soul or underscore Vegan Soul on Instagram. You can definitely reach out to me there. And I'm just going to try to keep busy and come up with some more innovative projects. (laughs) Edutaining. I love edutainment. (laughs) I don't think you have any trouble keeping busy. (laughs) I'm exhausted just talking to you. Thank you so much, Naja. This has really been fascinating. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Remember when we came to you with the fabulous news that Dr. Bronner's, the ethical personal care company that we all know and totally love, was making chocolate? Well, now we have some even more exciting news to add to that. This fall, Dr. Bronner's is adding three flavors of oat milk chocolate to their magic all-one chocolate line. That makes 10 total flavors of ethically produced vegan chocolate goodness. The new flavors are crunchy hazelnut butter, creamy mocha latte, and golden milk chai. Oh my God, I cannot wait to try all of them, though I personally am most excited about the creamy mocha latte because mocha and I, we go way back. The new oat milk chocolate flavors will be available on the Dr. Bronner's website and at select retailers nationwide beginning October 24th, 2023. These will be absolutely the perfect autumn treat. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's magic all-one chocolate line, head over to drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to find out more about the sourcing, ingredients, and production of the magic all-one chocolate line and try it out for yourself. Surprising. Our first story is from Horde's Dairyman. And the title, ironically, I think this is an ironic article, Stop the Spread of Infectious Diseases. This is by one Sydney Flick. And the reason I think it's ironic is because we have to keep in mind the hysteria that the industry expresses when animal activists go on onto factory farms and film and you know they nowadays take great precautions about disease and yet there's just like hysteria about the, the how they're violating sanitary protocols and and spreading all sorts of zoonotic diseases yeah well when they want people to go onto their farms like the precautions they take are not quite so uh 
elaborate as the ones they would encourage activists to take. The article starts off by pointing out that animals are great hosts for spreading certain germs that lead to zoonotic enteric diseases, diseases that you may be familiar with affecting the digestive system. Yeah, it's all the animal's fault. Like the animals are the hosts. Yeah. If you would stop hosting the animals, maybe they they would stop hosting the germs. They're talking about E. coli, Salmonella, Campylobacter, and Cryptosporidium. Very, very common, as they point out. If you got feces, you got germs. Well, they don't put it exactly like that. They point out that farms have a responsibility to their employees and visitors. As far as people working or living on the farm, this is what their recommendation is to how many precautions they have to take. Yearly training on best practices, such as wearing gloves when handling animals or manure and washing hands is normally sufficient. Imagine that. You're supposed to wash your hands after handling manure. Uh, There should be a designated area away from animals for eating. So you shouldn't eat in the middle of the manure pit. If someone does get sick, they should be allowed time off to get better. Yeah, actually, anytime anybody gets sick, they should be allowed time off to get better. Actually, even better than that, something that's not mentioned here is that they should get paid. They got sick because they were working at your place. There's no nothing in here about sick pay. Um, but then they start talking about visitors. That's who they're really worried about because they're into agritourism these days, especially in the dairy industry. They want people to come and be enculturated to what they're doing to these animals. And they're worried because, as this article points out, you may be held liable if a visitor was at your farm and then got sick. All right, what should you do about the importance of working with your insurance company to make sure you have sufficient liability coverage? Like maybe a more important consideration to at least put first would be how to avoid them getting sick rather than having insurance to cover uh, in case they get sick. It's good that they need insurance because insurance companies are good at forcing people to do, uh, you know, to take some care. All right, here are the elaborate, elaborate sanitation practices that they encourage. Keeps open paper towels, consistently stocked. Well, yeah, don't run out of soap. <laughs> Remind staff to wash their hands. I thought they were already doing that. Make hand washing accessible after any animal contact. Uh, yeah, you think? What kind of contact are we talking about here anyway? Always, I don't even get this one. Always eat first and then visit the animals. Uh, so like how long after visiting animals do you have to wait to eat? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't say. Simple signage to remind people there's a risk. Encourage no food or drink, strollers, smoking, tobacco, or e-cigarettes in animal areas. Yeah, uh, I think so. Keep the floor areas clean around animals. Yeah, good luck with that one. Oh, boy. They're so... I'm going to say it. I'm warning you. I'm going to say it. They're so full of shit. All right, next... This is from Pork Business, uh, another fine publication. Busting myths and opening doors, how one ag teacher is making an impact in the pork industry. This is an article about Riley Hinchy or something like that. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Something like that. He was an ag teacher at Streeter Township High School in Illinois. And there are two, no fewer than two pictures of this guy, this big guy, holding up a tiny little piglet who it's two separate piglets because there's two pictures looking into their eyes, a piglet looking scared. Yeah. Like, cause they love piglets so much. 
It's not easy to be an award-winning FFA advisor, but Riley Hinchy of Streeter Township High School in Illinois makes it look that way. Well, we'll tell you how he, how he makes it look easy. Because he loves to use the U.S. Pork Center of Excellence's Destination Pork High School curriculum. How would you like to be in high school and understand that the destination of your life is pork? The curriculum, according to this article, which is by one Jennifer Scheich, opens students' eyes to the pork industry. Yeah, I bet. And also provides insight into job and career opportunities. The best part, it's free. Well, who the hell is going to pay for for an ad for the pork industry? It's like you're lucky enough you can get this in the schools, pork industry. You're thinking that you're being kind for not making these students pay for it. Uh, so this guy who loves this this curriculum points out that there's a huge gap in understanding with students wanting to be involved in pork production. I bet, yeah, I bet so many students want to be involved in pork production. Anytime there's opportunity to show what life is really like outside our school, those highlights make a difference for our students, illustrating what they can do and sink their teeth into. An interesting metaphor, I have to say. He points out that there can be a negative public connotation at times when it comes to farrowing houses and modern pig farming practices. Really? A negative connotation? That's hard to believe. Students sometimes come in with a negative perception, not based on knowledge or experience, but on what they see in social media. Yeah, it's much better to trust the pork industry about what the pork industry is like than social media. It's nice to know that they think that social media is reaching these kids. I hope that's true. They have these farrowing crates in the school. They don't talk about whether they have gestation crates. So the two crates they picture where, you know, the the pigs are in this big room and then they're in crates which, which give them absolutely no room to move around whatsoever. But I guess kids, you know, are told, yeah, this is fine. And, you know, humans, 90% of them will say, oh, I see, it's fine. So after four years watching a pig farrow, understanding almost every piglet survived the birthing, get that almost... Almost every piglet survived the birthing and weaning process and gaining a better understanding of modern agriculture, including farrowing crates, medication, and antibiotics. Oh my God. Perceptions change. Unfortunately, I think he's saying they've changed for the better. I would think they would change for even worse. Of course, this is a million times better than a factory farm. It's still horrible though. It really is still horrible. Uh, When he takes a look at Destination Pork, he says he sees the opportunity it provides for students as a really great access point to understanding pork production. And this is the the clincher. I love this line. Without me putting in an overwhelming amount of effort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Riley. I bet it does make your job easier to have the pork industry write your curriculum for you. Oh, I guess, I, I guess, you know... We have to count this if their anxieties are rising or they wouldn't be doing all this bullshit or big shit. All right. I'm not sure this is a rising anxieties article, but I thought it was I thought it was really interesting and something I was not familiar with. So uh, this is from ProPublica and it's certainly something the industry should be anxious about, even though apparently they're not. This is about dairy. OSHA investigates small dairy farms so rarely that many worker advocates don't bother to report deaths and injuries. You know, most of the people working in these in these dairy farms are immigrants. And and apparently, like, even if like people are killed, uh that the 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 OSHA, the federal uh worker safety um agency just doesn't do anything about it because small farms can't be investigated, at least on a federal level. 
When dairy workers die on farms across the country, the circumstances are often similar. They drown in manure lagoons. Yeah, nice way to go, right? Drown in manure lagoons, get crushed by skid steers, or are trampled by cows. So this is happening on dairy farms, and OSHA is not getting involved because of this. It depends on factors that advocates for worker safety say seem arbitrary. They seem arbitrary because they are arbitrary. The state where they died, the size of the farm where they worked, or whether they lived in employer-provided housing. This is because, uh, you know, some states actually have regulations of their own. But in states that don't, which include New York and Vermont, two huge dairy states, they just have the federal uh, OSHA. And apparently Congress has banned the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration from investigating worker deaths, injuries, and complaints on farms with fewer than 11 workers unless those farms have employer-provided housing known as a temporary labor camp. So uh, the fact is, is that Farms in New York and Vermont, which are the, they're not the only two states, but the ones that they're pointing to, tend to have very small dairy farms. They're not like the ones in California that are huge. So they, the ones in California would probably have more than 11 workers. So this, this isn't even an issue for them. And they also have much higher state regulation. But uh, in New York and Vermont, for instance, worker advocates say they don't even bother calling OSHA when workers die or get hurt on small farms because they're so used to the agency saying it can't investigate. Do you believe? Well, of course you do. <sighs> what you got to believe anything? It's not just that New York and Vermont have a lot of small farms. It's also as as this Crispin Hernandez points out, who is a former dairy worker and uh, works and worker center of Central New York. It's on small farms that workers get injured the most, which makes sense. You know, like they're small businesses. A lot of them probably are not well run. They're not efficient. The big businesses maybe hideous and horrible, but they tend to have more money invested in processes. And, you know, there's all these other uh, ways of getting around these things. The industry mostly relies on, on undocumented immigrant workers whose ability to stay permanently in this country, and by that logic, stay permanently on a job, is precarious. So that makes them temporary workers. There's just a million different loopholes. And as a result, people are doing things like drowning in lagoons of manure. And the Occupational Safety and Health Administration doesn't get involved. One example here, in December 2009, a worker named Jose Obez Santis Cruz died on a small Vermont dairy farm after he was pulled into a piece of machinery and strangled by his own clothing. The state OSHA sent two inspectors to the farm. Santis, an immigrant from Mexico, lived in farm housing, according to interviews and records. But the agency determined it couldn't investigate because the farm employed too few workers. Well, what does that have to do with whether they should be liable for creating conditions that kill these workers? It's This is crazy. But, you know, we're used to things about being crazy. Like I said, I don't know whether they're anxious about this or not, but they sure should be. And this article was by Melissa Sanchez and Maryam Jamil. And I'm glad they're reporting on it because this is just... A, I know it has nothing to do with animals, but it's just one more scandal. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So 
if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the 25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our hen house, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash support. That's ourhenhouse.org slash support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.